Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Unfortunately, we see the gun lobby working with the Conservative Party of Canada to spread misinformation, to use fear, to sow division. Um by trying to mislead Canadians. And the reality is, we are stepping up. It is one of the most contentious pieces of proposed legislation in uh, recent history in this country, and that's C-21, the Liberals' firearms legislation, the addendum that has followed. And there are accusations and counter-accusations that the addendum wants to uh, remove the right of Canadians, licensed gun owners, to uh, own hunting rifles and shotguns. The Liberals say that's not the case. Uh, there, as I said, it's an extremely, as you know, a contentious piece of legislation. Uh, indigenous leaders are challenging the government, and I think the federal government is starting to realize that this is legislation that was by them aimed at urban centers, but it's not playing very well in a uh, great part of this country. And our guest is going to speak to that. Ed Berlew is a Toronto-based lawyer who specializes in firearms-related cases. He's defended more than 700 cases of licensed firearm owners since uh, beginning this work in 1999. And uh, Mr. Berlew spent some time on this program as my guest as we've talked about other pieces of firearms legislation that the government has brought forward. I think it was 2017. It was Bill C-71, I think. So, Ed, how are you? Thanks for coming on. Well, it's a good day. We have our first meaningful snowfall, and I'm feeling rather cheerful, except about the legislation and the state of Parliament, which is just terrible. So what is your view, your professional view, of B Bill C-21 and the addendum, and does the addendum actually include shotguns and rifles, which are hunting tools for millions of Canadians? Well, the first thing I'll say is about C-21 itself without the addendum. This is a great disarmament bill. It rewrites, it will rewrite thousands upon thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of judges' decisions made since 1998, where a person got a uh, a, a peace bond, and the judge said, just stay away, be nice to these people, keep the peace, be a good behavior, and we don't have to take your guns. Because C-21 changes that by saying, we don't care what the judge said 20 years ago. We don't care if you have reformed yourself, rehabilitated yourself, whether you've had your firearms license renewed four times since then. We're now going to revoke your firearms license, revoke your registration certificates for all your guns, and we're going to say that you can never have a firearms license again. 
That cut and dried? Huh? Is that cut and dried? Yes. These are changes that are being made to Section 5, I think it's Mm 5.1, of the Firearms Act and Section 70 of the Firearms Act. And, you know, so as lawyers, we would very often, and friends of mine who are lawyers, we fear how our phones are going to ring. Just 20 years ago, I'll tell you, even two years ago, yeah, people would say, well, I, I, I spit on somebody's shoes, that's an assault. And the Crown would say, look, we're not going to prosecute this, but you've got to take a peace bond. Be a, you know, be of good behavior. Hmm. And the person will say, fine, uh, I'll take that. I don't want a criminal uh, matter because I shoved somebody, spit on their shoes, or otherwise, you know, did an unwanted touching. And, and, and say, you've handled over 700 cases, right? Your guns. You've handled over 700 cases. Add, add 200 more to that. Okay. Yeah. So I went back and looked at something that you wrote on the 11th of December, 2018. And it's the gunblog.ca. And the headline is, Ed Berlew, a gun ban means government has lost trust in the RCMP. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the point. C-21 really should be viewed as the, the, the federal cabinet saying we cannot trust the ability of our esteemed RCMP who are trained in the safety of Canadians, who are the people who trained us who are licensed to have guns. We can't trust them. They don't do a good enough job. So we're just going to disarm. In that same piece... Canadians. In that same piece you also wrote, and I didn't even think about this until I read your uh, your blog piece, and I've sort of re- referenced this several times since, police already have the right to remove firearms from anyone, any day, simply because that person is identified by the RCMP as a threat of pot- or, or, or a potential threat to others and themselves. They already can do that. They don't need legislation, oh, yes. correct? That is existing legislation. Um, Section 117 of the Criminal Code, 117.04, they don't need a warrant. Any police officer can get a complaint. And they could say, uh, you know, it could be be my neighbor saying, uh, you know, uh, Harry Harry shouldn't have a gun. Oh, my God, Harry scared me. Uh, Harry said that he is going to uh, uh, do something bad to me. Uh, he's going to uh, screw me up somehow. And then the police can come without a warrant immediately and disarm me. So and go to the court and say we're going to have a hearing about this. So when you look at when you look at C21, I'm sorry, we we're talking over each other. It's probably it's our phone system. You're not hearing me and I'm not hearing you as well as I should. But let's let's give it a try. So when you look at C21 and you look at the addendum, what has to happen with this, with this legislation to make it, um, I don't want to use the word palatable to you, but uh, let me use that word, or is it impossible and it just has to be either dropped or rewritten? It has to be dropped and rewritten. The addendum is a mere 309 pages. <laughs> Quite an addendum. That's, that's 309 pages listing all the guns that they banned already in, uh, in, in May of 2020, 
which they haven't paid for, by the way. They don't seem to have to have the ability to figure out how to pay us for those guns. Let me ask you, you know, this question, because we're going to go to Lawrence Manzer, and I, I, I don't want to move you along too fast, but we're, I, we're going to keep go you ahead. on the phone when we speak with Mr. Manzer. I have to ask you this, because of his encounter in 2012 on his neighbor's lawn at 3 o'clock in the morning with an unloaded shotgun. Answer this to me, for me, please. There exists no absolute right to defend family, children, and spouse, or yourself in your home as you deem necessary in the event of an attack, including the use of a firearm in Canada. Is that correct? Uh, your responsibility, if you're going to defend yourself, is to use only sufficient force, or as much force, as the Crown later on decides, or the police decide, was necessary. There's no Castle Doctrine, yes? There isn't. Uh, Section 34 of the Criminal Code was revised about eight years ago, but it's still not enforced in, in, as a castle doctrine, and it is not a castle doctrine. Um, you can meet force with force, but it has to be sort of equivalent force. How you figure that out at three in the morning is impossible. Lawrence Manzer is with me now from New Brunswick. Mr. Manzer was a Canadian Armed Forces veteran, 17 years in the CAF. And in August of 2012, Mr. Manzer, in the middle of the night, became aware of an altercation at his neighbor's home. And, uh, Laurie, how are you? It's been a long time since we've spoken. How are things? Mr. Green, what a pleasure to hear from you again. It's been, what, 11 years now? It's been a long time, yeah. Please call Crazy. me Roy. So, uh, Laurie, please remind us what happened, uh, what was going on in your neighborhood, and what happened that night? Well, you know, to keep it brief and, and summarize, we were having uh, a systemic problem with vandalism in our small community here in uh, Burton, New Brunswick. And uh, the police uh, were well aware of what's going on. We've had uh, meetings, uh, neighbors, we talked to each other. And it all culminated with a, a phone call one night where my neighbor had uh, uh, heard some people outside his house directly across the uh, street from me. And you have to understand, very rural, dark area. Uh, we're a local service district out here, so it's it's quite uh, quiet. And, uh, I mean, I heard a, a melee going on, some fighting outside. We had a call from the neighbor. There was somebody in the yard, and I was worried about my neighbor. So I armed myself, you know, for self-protection. Uh, I'm not going to go out without, uh, you know, some tools to be able to protect myself. And very safely, I uh, de-escalated the uh, situation. So you took a shotgun with you, but it wasn't loaded, as I recall. Yeah, we had, we had discussed that, and, and there was some talk about why would you go out with an unloaded shotgun. Well, I maintained about a 60-foot distance and had the uh, the shotgun rounds in my hand to, you know, as I opened the door, assessing the situation, and, you know, I had a clear sight, and I would have loaded, you know, quickly had I needed to protect myself. But being Burton, it's like, well, let's, you know, take this at whatever level we need without escalating it too much. But I was at the ready, you know, trained by the military, trained in the civilian world. I had all my uh, certifications, so I was uh, experienced in what I was doing. So, Laurie, what happened when, when you got the situation under control and you said that it was that it was under control, the individuals uh, were, I guess, quiet, not moving, not causing problems any longer. So the, did the police arrive at that point? And when they did, eventually, whenever they did, 
Remind us, please, of what happened then. Yeah, it took a bit of time for them to respond. I mean, you know, we are a a bit of a rural area, so you can expect at least 10 to 15 minutes. So they showed up. uh, They returned the uh, young men who were, uh, uh, well, the 16, 17-year-old range, about uh, my weight and height. So, you know, we were quite equalized in uh, our ability to maybe – protect each other, you know, hand to hand. They might have even had the upper hand, but the uh, police took them away, confiscated their alcohol. And what I didn't know until the trial happened is that one of them had a uh, large knife on them and was armed. I found out at the trial that was something that came out in the disclosure. Uh, the police took them home, uh, gave the uh, knife back. I'm not sure about the alcohol. And they got a, uh, a ticket for underage drinking while I got arrested and my guns taken away. And you were charged. Oh, yes. Yes. So can you in about 60 seconds, and I hate to rush you, and we'll talk to you again going forward, but can you in about 60 seconds, we have Ed Berlue on the line with us, the Mm -hmm. lawyer in Toronto firearms uh, law specialist. What happened when the case went to court? How long was it in court, and what eventually was the verdict? Well, I'll sum up briefly in the uh, 60 seconds. Uh, The verdict was a uh, mistrial. And the reason why, I found it really funny after the truth was being stretched and things weren't making sense with the uh, the, uh, trial, with the uh, defense, um, all of a sudden a mistrial was called because I was charged, or I should say charges were laid a second time, summary, can, uh, a summary offense at six and a half months, which violated my charter rights. So it, it seemed funny that nobody saw that until they were losing, and then it was brought up as soon as we came in after dinner, and it was thrown out. So a mistrial, and you got your guns back. Oh, yeah, I've got everything back. In fact, i got to say one little tidbit. The night before, the Crown Prosecutor called my lawyer and wanted to make a deal where I pled guilty and I got my guns back and everything got erased. And I'm like, no, this stinks. I'm going to go because I know I did the right thing. Yeah. And as you're listening to this, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking that with the charge having been laid after the six months and staying summary, it should have been thrown out in the first minute of trial because that's a nullity. And uh, from a technical standpoint, but as for what he did um, that night, he, I, you know, he acted, I think, in the best interest of himself, his neighbor, and his community. And he should not have been charged. He should not have had his guns taken. So under the laws that existed in 2012... 2011, 2012, was it, was it written in a way that Mr. Manzer should not have been charged then under the existing legislation? Yes, it could be, because the degree of force he was using was non-lethal. Um, the perpetrators responded properly by stopping whatever they were doing, and they were next door to him. I mean... There's no big wall between his, his where he is and his neighbor. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they could just as easily have walked across or sprinted across to his house. Um, as soon as he exited the house to even look to see what was going on, he was put in danger because 
Nobody would know how these perpetrators were armed. Okay. They could have knives. They could have screwdrivers, hammers, yeah. all of those things. Okay. Death. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. The benefactor in, in this situation would be predatorial uh, regimes that our country's apparatus, the security, national security apparatus, have been warning parliamentarians. And these are namely... Uh, the Russians, the Iranians, and uh, the communist Chinese. Kelly Chu, who was a uh, British Columbia Conservative member of Parliament, elected in 2019 and lost the election last year in 2021, was on the air with us and very clearly believes that uh, Beijing directly interfered with uh, with his election campaign. And we hear more and more about that, about China's interference in this country's affairs and it's being investigated by uh, authorities and is being investigated by some of the really talented and skilled investigative journalists like my friend Sam Cooper. Global news story today, RCMP foreign interference investigators visit Friendship Society. And it's by uh, Sam Cooper and Stuart Bell. And Sam uh, joins us to share what he's discovered about China's interference into Canada's affairs to date, including the presence of Chinese police stations Sam Cooper's uh, book is Willful Blindness, How a Criminal Network of Narcos, Tycoons, and Chinese Communist Party Agents Infiltrated the West. Sam, thanks for uh, for taking the time. Quite a story that on globalnews.ca today. Could you just bring us up to date on, on what this is about? Thanks, Roy. Yes, uh, we, we advanced the story by learning that uh, RCMP's national security units have been very actively investigating in Toronto, where some of these allegedly Communist Party-linked community groups are located. And uh, this weekend in Vancouver, we learned uh, from sources close to the investigation that RCMP was both covertly and then overtly on Saturday afternoon, uh, knocking on doors, talking to uh, leaders associated to uh, a Richmond clubhouse that is one of these registered nonprofits that investigators believe is connected to China's uh, United Front Work Department. That is Xi Jinping's global uh, interference and influence apparatus. And specifically, investigators are looking at whether these covert Chinese uh, police stations are operating. And Roy, the the concern here is that uh, Chinese security officers are illegally operating in Canada to both target uh, so-called economic fugitives, but also to uh, intimidate, harass, and uh, question, perhaps even coerce to return to China, critics of that regime through these police uh, locations, which would just be, uh, from the outside, look like community halls. But the sources uh, in police and intelligence say that they're really network meeting places for nefarious characters, including covert Chinese officials undercover. Wow. Wow. So, and, and really sophisticated too, eh, Sam? 
powerfully sophisticated. Roy, I've been reporting uh, for years and most recently, as you know, about these United Front networks that allegedly have uh, become so embedded and sophisticated in Canada that they can infiltrate our political parties, our political systems from uh, federal down to school boards, and uh, can intimidate, harass, and and really... uh, monitor, uh, also gather intelligence from uh, diaspora communities that have uh, come to Canada in most cases to be away from the communist regime, but are facing the the real threats of coercion and harassment is what is the focus of this current investigation that we're talking about today. Uh, for the first time, really, uh, Canadian federal police are coming out, showing their presence and saying, it's not it's not okay for uh, Chinese agents to be uh, operating on Canadian soils and targeting Canadian citizens. Yeah, I thought you know I, I I looked at that as well when I read your story, your story and, and Stuart's story together, that RCMP officers canvassed the area around the Friendship Society in Richmond, and that really is uh, that's really uh, making a point, isn't it? That's that's saying we we're really watching you and we're we're open about it now. Roy, that's exactly right. Uh, I think we can see that uh, RCMP wouldn't gather too much, uh, you know, sensitive and evidence by knocking on neighborhood doors. But you're right; they are showing uh, this the neighborhoods where these uh, stations are operating and may have been able to intimidate residents. That we, the Canadian law enforcement arm, are openly here now. We're we're openly asking questions, and you can believe that we're also covertly and undercover digging very deep. And Roy, I can tell you, we we're informed that uh, some of these uh, so-called community leaders, these would mostly be very wealthy businessmen in Vancouver and Toronto, are facing questions. Uh, in the past few days for their uh, alleged associations to these groups. So you also write about Operation Fox Hunt, and can you give us um, some information, Sam, on on what Operation Fox Hunt is, part of the United Front Networks, and you write about that in your book, Willful Blindness, but uh, just fill us in on, uh, on what you can, please. Sure, from uh, my intelligence sources and, and, and research, uh, open sources as well. We've known for years that uh, Xi Jinping's regime has advertised its fox hunt as a supposed uh, uh, tool of justice for, for China to, to uh, go after um, bad people that have absconded with illicit gains from that country and, and maybe doing bad in other countries. But what uh, CSIS, that's Canadian Intelligence, openly uh, stated to me when I started to uh, report these stories over the past month is that fox hunt is really uh, not not a, a tool to go at corruption. It's a tool of international repression, that is, for the Z's regime to reach its security arms into diaspora communities around the world wow. and to, uh, to do undercover work really aimed at protecting the regime. And that means... Uh, intimidating, threatening, and harassing people in other countries. Yeah, and uh, there have been stories, uh, Sam, and you alluded to this a few minutes ago, that they actually do or have coerced individuals to leave the country they're living in, like, for example, potentially Canada or or maybe a country in Europe, and go back to uh, China and face charges there because the um, Xi government in Beijing is targeting these individuals' families. So the person living in Canada 
as concerns for their family in China. So when the, the Chinese uh, police stations, quote, unquote, say you need to go back to China to face charges to protect their families, they go. That's exactly right. And what scale are we talking about? Uh, This global story uh, really kicked off about a month ago when an NGO from Spain uh, revealed that these stations, uh, according to Chinese government documents, are operating around the world. We, we, We now read of at least 100. It's believed to be many more worldwide. And uh, they are connected to uh, China's Ministry of Public Security, set up in uh, stations around the world under the cover of, you know, supposedly offering services, uh, uh, unofficial sort of consulate services. But they are. uh, We know, Roy, of cases I'm working on. uh, I'm hearing from complainants already in Canada that say that their relatives could have been illegally returned to China by people who may appear to be very wealthy community leaders, but are believed to be uh, not only working with China's government, but involved in very nefarious, uh, uh, fear-filled activities in Canada, criminal activities. You know, I ask myself, Sam, when they're involved in this kind of activity, and it's national, it's not just in British Columbia, it's not just in Toronto, it's going on, although that may be the focus, I don't know, you would know far better than I, but but it's but but it's more national, and I ask myself whether they even really are trying to keep this totally quiet, or whether leaking a bit of information uh, just to uh, just to further the intimidation message is part of their operate uh, you know, op- their uh, modus operandus. I, I do believe you're right. Uh, I, I can tell you that you know beyond this current investigation that we're talking about, uh, as you know, I've been following this story for yeah. years. Yeah. We can read in Chinese language media of people claiming to be uh, police officers in China, even in Canada, and saying that they are here uh, to protect the Chinese people. But as I as I discuss with my sources, when when someone is saying that in a Chinese news media story, and the person beside them is well-known in the community as uh, a target of uh, money laundering investigations, then that would appear to be, as you say, a very open way to advertise. We're watching uh, the Chinese community, and we are powerful people. So as as to the whole overall strategy, you know, I, I, I always tell people we can't say that uh, Beijing is controlling everything. It's a massive country with many power centers. But what is clear is that these uh, fox hunts have been operating for Years in Canada, essentially with no uh, no counter. Uh, now that uh, some you know worldwide attention is brought to bear, uh, the the law enforcement game is definitely changing. How China will respond, we don't know yet. So, Sam, in, in your book *Willful Blindness*, you write about uh, the United Front networks and how they operate. And uh, is this all tied together? I, I guess it's all tied together, isn't it? The friendship societies and uh, the United Front networks—they work from the same playbook. Yes, that's right. Uh, I explain uh, much more deeply in my lengthy book that uh, the United Front uh, was elevated by Xi Jinping. It's it's been operating for the Chinese Communist Party for decades. What it is essentially is uh, trying to bring China's uh, uh, friends together to 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 get wins, so to speak, uh, wherever they operate, and to go after China's enemies. And so there's something called the United Front Work Department. Uh, with top level in Beijing, controls uh, United Front bureaus in China. It has officials in embassies and consulates worldwide. And these people, uh, for example, in Canadian consulates, operate as uh, 
essentially, let's just say the word, uh, spies or security officers that are trying to infiltrate what used to be uh, community groups uh, of people uh, getting together and celebrating their hometown. But now all the evidence is they're controlled, uh, intimidated, surveilled and used in some cases by by officials in Chinese consulates. That's what the United Front is about, and it operates on many different levels, including attempting to infiltrate Canada's election system. You are um, a truly exceptional investigative journalist. You really are. I mean, we're talking here, you and I, on the air, and our listeners are hearing what you're saying. I have an idea of how much work has gone into, how much work you put into this, and how much digging and how much research you have to do. Sam, what you're doing is just amazing work. So we have this ongoing and far more public investigation at the present time. Did this just suddenly spring up, or did was, was our senior intelligence world aware of what was going on and just dropped the ball and didn't do anything for a protected period of time? Well, I'll take your question in two parts. The focus of uh, today's story is, yes, it appears to be a, a new world in Canadian law enforcement where uh, this activity that we've known uh, at least publicly uh, for a month or two with, with the RCMP acknowledging that they're looking into the problem is now the investigations are entering a very active phase. The RCMP wants victims that may have been afraid to come forward because they believed they, they would not have their complaints received. Uh, now the RCMP is saying, we want to, to talk to you. We want to build cases. And again, they're telling the alleged suspects this activity uh, is not kosher. It's not legal. But uh, the deeper point that, that, that I have raised, uh, you know, in interviews and uh, talking to sources, looking at documents, and I write about it in my book more deeply, is that my sources indicated that fox hunt has been going on for probably since about 2012 at least. Uh, very uh, well-connected investigators, both in the RCP and CSIS, have been uh, chasing the people involved in these networks. I have told and I've written that, uh, that investigators wanted the RCMP brass, and that would really mean, you know, ministers in Ottawa to take this more seriously. And not much, not much was happening. Uh, there's, you know, there's a national security document for a panel of parliamentarians that look into these issues. They have security clearances. It was published in 2019, mostly redacted, but you can see a lot of lines referring to the, the fox hunt activity. So we know it was very well known in that study period. And uh, you're right, uh, nothing that has happened that we know of until the past month when the RCMP demonstrated that it's looking deeply at interference broadly, but the focus right now on these uh, police stations that have come to light. Yeah, do you know that uh, NGO that you mentioned in Spain, the Guardian Defenders, uh, they, were on, they were on the show about three weeks ago, when they, just before they released their report the day before. But one thing they did say in, uh, in a preliminary release was these uh, police stations in some European countries, the actual police stations work in conjunction with the national government of that country, and there have been instances where police officers, actual police officers of those countries have been on patrol with officers from the Chinese police stations, which is, which is a really, a, which is a mind bender to me. 
That's absolutely true. Uh, it's true around the world, as that NGO cited. And Roy, I can tell you that I'm aware of cases in Canada where uh, at least a couple that we know of that uh, uh, police officers have either been duped or for some reason have worked uh, uh, with these uh, Chinese operations. Maybe they thought in some cases they were really going after an economic fugitive when the, they were going after someone that China feared had uh, deep secrets related to the Politburo. Roy, I wrote in one of my recent reports that I, uh, I got a visibility on uh, sensitive intelligence that said one of these fox hunt cases in Canada connects to the Politburo. That's China's highest level uh, power group of politicians. So that's an indication that these cases are, are much more than even if it was just a simple case of them operating, it wouldn't. It, there's more to it than that. Yeah. Tip of the iceberg, eh, Sam? That's right. Some people were aware, many people were not aware of Casper, the great Pyrenees dog in Georgia. We understand he's 20 months old, so still a puppy. I've had lots of dogs in my life, and usually they become adults around 24 months. That's when you can count on them to not decide, well, this chair needs peeing on. Um, so Casper, 20 months old, was confronted by 11 coyotes trying to get to the sheep he was guarding, and he killed eight of them, eight of them. Dr. Susan Brosman is the veterinarian who has been caring for Casper. She's the director of medical services at lifelineanimal.org in Georgia. And uh, Dr. Brosman, thank you so much for coming on, on, on the air with us. Have you ever, have you, have you encountered a situation like this previously professionally? I have not. We, we do see a lot of trauma, but not, um, not the wounds that uh, poor Casper had. Yeah. Could you tell us, before I ask you about what he encountered and the other questions I have for you, what was his health like when, when you first started to treat him, and what's it like now? So when we first saw him, it was about two weeks after it happened. He spent about two weeks in the emergency um, clinic. Uh, before we actually took over his care. Um, and when we got him, the wound on his back was probably about a little more than a foot long and maybe about a half a foot wide. Um, wow. And now it's very small. So it's he's doing very well. You know, when we first heard the story about this, this one dog that went to battle with 11 coyotes and killed eight of them, it was it was a superhero story. It was John Wick in the animal world. But the but the more that I, I find out, the more I realize just how determined and dedicated to protecting the sheep this 20-month-old dog was. He, he was fighting almost insurmountable odds, wasn't he? He absolutely was. Um, he uh, I've not heard of 11 coyotes together in one place, but uh, he definitely um, did some damage as well. Yeah. What did you find out about the... Uh, the battle itself, which I understand. I, the first report I saw was that it went over on for a period of hours. But since then, I've seen more reports saying that the owner of Casper saying it was more like half an hour. Yeah, that that's what I've heard, too, that from him, that it was more like a half an hour. Uh, you know, time goes by really slow when you're trying to uh, find your animal. And uh, you hear them and you hear the coyotes, but you can't get to them. Yeah. Um, so I think that it was probably uh, more like 30 minutes, but I'm not 100% sure. 
What kind of dog is he? What's his personality like? Well, Casper is, he's a great Pyrenees. Um, He's just a big, big boy. He's a big baby. Um, With us, he just lays around. We keep him in the doctor's office with us. Um, He wants to check out everybody. He does find his favorite. So one of our technicians is his favorite, but he follows her around everywhere. Um, He's just as gentle as can be. And what is the, I've received emails all night long, by the way, I was talking about them yesterday, so I had emails coming in constantly, and, um, and people want to know, um, what's the personality like? What are, what are great Pyrenees known for? Um, I think that they're gentle giants. Um, they're, you know, they're there to protect the herd, and whether it's sheep or goats, um, you know, they can uh, do their job really well. They can be, um, I wouldn't say mean, but they, you know, when they do their job, they're, they are uh, guarding a flock and they will do that. Yeah. Yeah. I received an email and I was hoping I'd be able to talk to this person who sent the, or actually responded on Twitter. Um, And he has great Pyrenees and he says they're very gentle, but they can also be, they are determined dogs. But uh, am I correct? Uh, There were other great Pyrenees there as well and five of them and they they took care of moving the sheep away from the coyotes while Casper did all the fighting. No, there was only one other one with them and uh, and that was um, Daisy and she was actually in front of the sheep and Casper went and... um, went after the coyotes. Okay. Can you give us a little more information on what you had to do for him? You know, you mentioned the wound on his back, which was really substantial, and now it's uh, it's much, much better. What did you have to do for him? What we did is basically wound care, changing the bandages, um, you know, hospitalizing him, having him on antibiotics. Um, he had a wound on his neck that had to be changed daily and one on his back. Um, keeping him uh, occupied so he didn't uh, want to escape all the time, <laughs> trying to get back home, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's, he sounds like quite the guy. He really does. So is he, he going to be? Uh, is he going to be a hundred percent back to normal when when everything is finished? Um, you know, that's hard to say. I think that um, it depends on what kind of scarring is left on his back. After everything's done and everything's grown in, um, I think he'll be fine, uh, you know, to be Casper, whether he goes back to um, being a guardian dog or not, that, you know, time will tell mm-hmm. with that. Yeah. But he still has several months of recovery. It's not a it's not a quick recovery. Right, right. And it hasn't been inexpensive uh, to do all of this, this treatment for him. Uh, if somebody wants to... Uh, Assist with that. If any of our listeners want to send a contribution for Casper, can they do that? They can. And, you know, right now, um, you know, we're taking donations not just for Casper, but for um, for all the animals that we help like Casper, because he's not the first one. And I'm sure won't be the last one that we've had to um, help uh, financially with. Um, but, yes, they can. And they can go onto our website, which is uh, lifelineanimal.org. Okay. And there's a donation button there. All right. So lifelineanimal.org. It really is, Dr. Brosman, I've had dogs all my life. 
Mm-hmm. I've had Rottweilers, I've had Shepherds, I've had Dobermans. People you say, why do you have those dogs? I said, because I haven't got the guts to bite people myself. You know, ask a dumb question, you're going to get a dumb answer. But I've had these big dogs, but we also had little guys, you know, like uh, Yorkies, who thought they were Rottweilers. And, mm-hmm. and, and it, this is such a, there's something about this story about Casper that just absolutely reaches me. I, 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 I'm guessing I'm not the only person who feels that way. I think a lot of it can be his determination to survive because he did disappear for two days, and uh, and he was injured. I mean, he lost his tail in the attack. Oh, wow. Um, so I think that his determination to survive, and he's such a great patient. I mean, as far as, you know, we can change his bandages, there's no sedation needed, Um he just, he's a good dog. You don't suppose his owner would be willing to give him up, do you? No. No, that's too bad. <laughs> I would have put and in a bid. neither would his kids. Okay, so. well, I would have put in a bid for Casper, for sure. <laughs> Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.